opportunity that you have. God is worthy of worship. I appreciate very much the prayers that our brother Cameron offered to us as he directed our hearts and our minds to the throne above. God is worthy of worship. And he seeks true worshipers. And for that reason, God is the one who commands worship. Therefore, worshiping God is a responsibility as well as a privilege. And that obligation should be growing out of faithful hearts who revere and love their Creator and their Redeemer. In Isaiah chapter 2, we have a prophecy about the exaltation of the mountain of the house of the Lord. And Isaiah states in that passage, And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Over in Matthew 21, verse 3, when Jesus zealously drove out businessmen and money changers out of the temple in Jerusalem. He said this, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. What God has sanctified, what God has set apart as His, is not ever to be treated as something that's common. Nor is it to be something that is to be mishandled profanely, simply to suit our, our whims and our wishes as men. Now that physical temple of God in Jerusalem long ago is no more. And it is to be no more forever. It is never to be rebuilt. But God still does have a house. He has a dwelling. He has a temple that is made without hands. And we're not talking about the church building. This particular house is the house that has been built by Jesus Christ, God's Son. And as Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6 states, it is a house whose house we are. It is a house of sanctified souls. Souls who are being fit, fitted together for holiness unto God. And that's brought out, for example, in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3, as well as Ephesians 4. This sacred temple, this sacred house that is consist of or is composed of members of Christ, is God's house of worship now. That is, faithful people, faithful people of God, are God's temple. They are the holy temple of God in whom he they are the dwelling for worshiping God. And so God has ordained, God has ordained that there ought to be the fellowship, go back here, the fellowship of assemblies. I want you to very briefly think about an example in the Old Testament. Under God's former law given to Israel, God commanded a particular kind of worship. That he would accept from the nation. And so you can go back and read in Exodus, Leviticus, and see all of what was involved in the law, in the commandments there, 
nation. For example, in Exodus chapter 23, it talks about that there were three, you know, there was three times a year that they would celebrate, celebrate the, you know, three major feasts. And they're listed here in Exodus chapter 23, verse 15. He says, you shall observe the feast of, of unleavened bread. And he says, for seven days you're to eat you know, unleavened bread as I commanded you. And you look in verse 16. He says, you shall also observe the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labors from which you sow in the field. As well as the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. And then notice what it says, three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. So part of the law involved this idea that they were required to assemble. And for particularly at these three main feasts, and these feasts are described over in Leviticus chapter 23 as holy convocations. You know, what is a convocation? that word a lot, but basically all it is, it is a, a call together for a meeting. And what we're talking about here in Exodus and Leviticus is it is a calling together of God's people for a holy meeting in accord with God's instructions as found in the Old Testament. But we're not under that law. You know, we're not observing those feasts. Those are not what God has instructed us to do in Christ. But in Christ, God's people are to worship together. You think about the idea found in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about the church that is built by, by Christ, the one body of Christ. Uh, you know, that is to be growing up, verse 15, in all aspects into Christ. In verse 16, from whom... That is from Christ, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so here's this idea of God's house, God's people, God's body, God's church is being fit together and being fit together how? By the supply of individual working joints. And we all understand the idea of a joint. And a joint is ineffective if it is not joined together. And you think about in the past months that you know, what we have experienced, you know, because of the, cir the circumstances we find ourselves in. Have you not felt somewhat disjointed? Recall some things that uh, Leland expressed early on as we were trying to adjust and work together through this, this period of time. He talked about how you know, we're not together in, in, in our normal way. And it wasn't. It, it wasn't normal. And he warned us or admonished us. And he says, if this ever begins to feel normal, if this abnormal ever becomes to feel normal, then that's not good. And so we can understand the idea that you know, God is worthy of worship and God has ordained the fellowship of assemblies as an important part of us worshiping him. The church. We the people who are members of the Lord's body, of the Lord's church, you know, you know, is God's house. And God's house cannot fulfill all of the Lord's commandments with 
together. And you see that in a number of instructions, particularly, for example, in the, you know, the letter to the Corinthians in his first epistle. In teaching them about the Lord's Supper, you look there in chapter 11, as we have just observed, the proclamation of our Savior's death by commemorating his body and his blood in the manner that we have been instructed, by partaking of unleavened bread and drinking the fruit of the vine. And so you see here, as Paul's addressing the church at Corinth, and they've got some problems, and one of the problems related to the Lord's Supper. And so they needed to be taught again. They needed to be corrected. They needed to be reproved. And so he's talking about, in verse 20, therefore when you meet together, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. They weren't doing what they're supposed to do in the right way. But the whole point is they were coming together to do that. And you drop down to verse 20. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And so we see clearly the Lord's Supper is to be observed when Christians come together to proclaim the death the Son of God, the death of their King and Savior. But that's not the only reason we come together, is it? To honor and revere our Savior. But also you look over in chapter 14, in verse 26, the importance of edifying one another through teaching and through singing is to be done how or when? Well, partly in assembly. Verse 26. You know, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, he talks about some of the miraculous gifts they have. But when you assemble, each has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. God has ordained the fellowship of assemblies as an important part of our walk in God, with God in Christ Jesus. And we see here that this fellowship, this worshiping together, not only is a commemoration of the death of the Savior, but also it is a time for us to edify one another. Take the instruction found in Colossians chapter 3.16, where it talks about how the making melody to the Lord you know, is a time to admonish. As we make melody to the Lord, we are to be admonishing fellow members of God's house when we sing to one another. So you see that in verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Well, this kind of relationship is talked about in Colossians chapter 3. Necessitates, necessitates the fellowship of an assembly. If you're going to sing to me, and I'm going to sing to you together. Now, our digital technological world has opened many doors for us. And these doors have made it possible for us to make connection in ways that other generations have not had any access. And there is amazement in that, and there is wonder in that. But digital connections do not replace... God's house coming together. As good as it is to have access in all these ways, it does not replace the house of God coming together in holy convocations. In Hebrews chapter 10, 
Hebrews chapter 10. Turn over there to that familiar passage. You want to, I want you to note the fact that through this holy assembly together is how saints of God encourage. It is through this holy assembly together is how saints of God stimu stimulate steadfastness, love, and good works. And so we begin our reading there in verse 23 of the 10th chapter of Hebrews. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. And so this ordained fellowship of assembling that is from God is something that has holy, holy matters. Worthy of, worthy 
of our worship. And he is longing to find true worshipers, and so therefore God commands worship. Now teaching and preaching are part of that. It is part of that of, of worship because the proclamation of God's word, when we proclaim God's word, it glorifies God. Think about it this way. In Peter's first epistle, it talks about the word of God, the word of Christ. It describes it as the incorruptible word. And so this incorruptible word honors the incorruptible God that is described about in Romans 1. Because that incorruptible word has come from the incorruptible God. And so we have an example in Acts chapter you know, 20, uh, verse 7, where Paul meets with brethren in the city of Troas who have gathered together on the first day of the week. They have assembled as a body of believers to worship God. And what does Paul do? Paul preached to them. He preached to that assembly of brethren. And so when the church assembles, when we come together, there are to be exhortations. When we come together, there are to be Admonishment. And that's brought out back in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 again. Our Lord's words are truth. Our Lord's words are grace. I can't help but think about one of the Psalms, Psalm 19, and that sentiment that the psalmist of so long ago brought out. In describing the testimonies and the precepts of our creator, of our God. And you look there, for example, in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord are pure, enlighten the eye. The fear of the Lord is clean, endure forever. Judgment of the Lord are, are true, they are righteous altogether. Now we may live under a different covenant from God than what David and the other psalmists lived. We may live under a different covenant, but the sentiment that is expressed there in Psalm 19 about the revelation of God's mind and will has not changed. Whenever God speaks, his testimonies or his precepts, they are always wisdom and righteousness. Whenever God addresses his people, his words are pure and they are true. And our glorious God, our heavenly Father, has revealed himself, but not only himself, but also he has revealed his will through his Son. And we need to be speaking it. And we need to be hearing it. That is, God breathed. Because his perfect revelation illuminates to us, brings to the forefront of our minds how worthy he truly is of our worship. In God's house, in God's house, his ideal priesthood preserves knowledge. His ideal priesthood speaks instruction from his mouth. In Malachi chapter 2, we have the prophet actually 
rebuking the priesthood of that day for corrupting the covenant that God had made with them. And God goes back and recalls here in chapter 2 as Malachi is addressing these words to the priests in his day. And he describes the covenant that he made with them here, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. But notice what it says about what that ideal priesthood under the original covenant that God had made ought to have been. He says, true instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now in the Old Testament, that former Levitical priesthood fell short of that. They corrupted that covenant. They did not uphold you know, the ministry that God had called them to render. But in Christ, in Christ it is fulfilled. And it is in Christ that God's excellencies are proclaimed. Over in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, You are a cho chosen race, speaking to Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Christians are God's priesthood. Not only are they God's house, they are God's priesthood. They are a holy nation, a people for God. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Christ instructs us regarding how the house, this house of worship, is to worship God. And one way is that we do so through the teaching and the preaching of the mind and will of God that is given to us. But Christians are also commanded to sing. We're commanded to sing spiritual songs. Why? Well, because God seeks what? He seeks true worshipers. And one way we worship is through singing. And so what kind of singing does he want? He wants genuine, heartfelt praise from his children. That's what he wants. We are God's children by adoption. Spirit's adoption in Christ. And what God is seeking from us is the praise that is genuine from our heart those who are his children. Musical instruments do not lift up praise from hearts. Musical instruments can't do that. An instrumental accompaniment distracts the worshiper from the proper focus and from the proper respect for God. But children of light, that is children of a God of light, are commanded to be filled with the Spirit so that they may make melody with their hearts to the Lord through singing. In Ephesians chapter 5, you turn to a very familiar passage. Ephesians 5, verse 18 and 19. As Paul instructs the church in Ephesus and continues to instruct us to this day through the inspired message of the Lord's word. And so reading there in the 18th verse, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God. And so singing is part of our worship because God wants heartfelt praise from us. 
so we're instructed to make melody with our hearts by singing to one another. Hebrews chapter 13 as well talks about the importance of, of praise. In the 13th chapter, verse 15, it says, Through him, that is, through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And so we are to be offering up sacrifices of praise to God with overflowing gratitude. When we, when we lack, or when we have a, a lack of giving of thanks to God, that leads to a lack of rejoicing. And when there's a lack of rejoicing, there's a lack of singing. And God says, I want you to sing. I want you to sing from a heart that is filled with me, with praise and gratitude and love, because you rejoice in the Lord and always rejoice in the Lord. Now, God does not accept lip service. We understand that. Over in Matthew 15, verse 8, we find where the Jesus himself talked about how, you know, the Jews of his day, their worship was vain. Why was that? Because they honored God with their words, but their heart was far from Him. So God's not going to accept lip service. That is words that are intended to honor God, but the hearts are distant from God. This should never, ever be a social distancing from God. We are to come before Him always with hearts filled with gratitude and joy, ready and eager lift up our voices and praise him for he's our father who loved us so much that he sent the only begotten son Jesus to die on a cross for us God's house is a house of worship that is the people we are a house of worship that is to be a temple filled with the voices of his children uniting together to praise him and to honor him because he is the almighty one that we are to offer praise to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, for we are his people. That is, the Christ-called and built house. The sanctified house of praise and, and prayer is a foretaste. Think about it. it is a foretaste of the immeasurable wonder and awe that we will experience, experience one day when we join the heavenly host to worship God forevermore. It is just a foretaste. understanding of God, knowledge and understanding of his worthiness, and also of his expectations of us. So yes, God requires right actions, but also God requires right attitudes. God expects us to worship him, but to worship him in a manner that is not vain, but true, genuine, sincere, Out in that first example is that 
judgment will begin in the house of the Lord. And one of the things that we'll be judged on or judged regarding is our worship. We are a house of worship. And we need to examine ourselves. And we need to make sure we are lifting up our voices and our hearts in a manner that is truly respectful, honorable, and reverent unto God and we serve. If you're not part of that house, if you're not part of God's family, you're outside of Christ, you're separate from God, and in that condition, in, in that state of sin, you're without hope. Hope is found in Christ. And to be added to the body of Christ, to enter this spiritual house of God, you must come to Jesus. You must come to him in faith and obedience by surrendering your will to his. Being willing to confess your faith before men with your mouth, repent of your sins, and be buried with him in baptism. That you may be added to Christ and become a priest in the spiritual house of God and offer him Help you any way spiritually. We invite you to courage. Please come now as we stand and sing.